Welcome to this week's edition of the St. Paul Podcast. I'm Peter Marty, Senior Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church, located in the heart of Davenport, Iowa. Right here each week, you can hear a message to inspire your walk with God and hear beautiful music to fill your life. Let this podcast be your occasion to contemplate some of the deepest things in life, just as I hope it helps faith come alive for you. Chances are good that if you are even the least bit familiar with the Christian tradition, or perhaps you are one who grew up thoroughly engaged in a church, you think of God as somehow male. That would be M-A-L-E. Maybe not in terms of everything anatomical, but masculine in certain senses for sure. The prayers of the church with which you're most familiar and the Bible that's on your bookshelf or perhaps on your nightstand at home, and the hymns or the songs of the church that you know well or that rest on the pages of the hymnal. These all likely refer to God with male pronouns, he, him, his. That may not seem like a big deal to you, and at one level, it's not. But what the limits of language do, or the constraints that we come up against when all we have for God are male pronouns and masculine metaphors, what we're essentially doing is domesticating God or shrinking God. In other words, we miss out on many more expansive perspectives that would bless our faith. For why can't God be in our imagination at least, both 
muscular and gentle, both masculine and feminine, and so much, much more than even these confining categories. In today's reading from the Old Testament, you're going to hear the prophet Isaiah speak of both Jerusalem and Yahweh, or God, as a nursing mother, one whose people drink deeply from what Isaiah calls her consoling breast. If you're not accustomed to thinking of God in such terms, well, listen up. First to Isaiah, and then to my message. Here's Isaiah, the 66th chapter, beginning at the 10th verse. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. For thus says the Lord, I will extend prosperity to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Now to a word about God as your mother. Yes, your divine parent as father and as mother. And if this kind of thinking is new to you, well then roll down your window, buckle up, and let's go. Well, I don't know if you've put any thought into this uh, idea at all, but the prevailing language for most Christians and for most churches when it comes to defining or identifying God tends to be masculine or male. Our hymns, so many of the songs we sing in this service, our Bible translations, the conversations that we engage, when it comes to language about God, it tends to be the pronouns he, him, his. And we use nouns or metaphors like king and father and warrior. In fact, to use language other than that which is masculine strikes a whole lot of Christian believers as deviant or really problematic. We've been shaped. The whole Western world actually has been shaped in part by this guy who laid atop a scaffold for four years in the early 16th century painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling in Rome. Michelangelo painted God as this muscular being with this awesome forearm reaching out to to touch Adam and show how close heaven and earth actually come. Michelangelo, he wouldn't be the first, he wouldn't be the last to give this sort of muscular view of God, if you will, this anthropocentric male. Uh, It's a muscularity that so much of Christian art and so much of Christianity has had actually from the get-go. It's fun to see those who are willing to play with this a little bit and even mock it because why should it be definitive like the New York cartoonist 
who puts this guy in his bathrobe up on a celestial cloud, and he's standing before the throne of God, this bony-looking guy with bald head and a few sprouts of hair and a tuft of mustache, who looks to me like Gandhi, and he says, you don't look anything like your pictures. Well, it's not hard to trace where these male images for God come from. They come from Scripture. And it may not be a surprise to many of you that Scripture was written by men. Uh, That's who recorded the words of Scripture. That's who interpreted Scripture for the last 20 centuries, by and large. Men who lived in a world that was dominated by males. And so it shouldn't be surprising that women and slaves and children and others on the outskirts or edges of society, uh, they didn't exactly have authority. They weren't exactly recognized or acknowledged for their legitimacy. There are, in Scripture, about 800 women mentioned, which is a fourth of all the human characters in Scripture, one-fourth. And of those 800 women mentioned, more than 600 of them have no name. We only know them by some role that they played. So they're missing an identity, they're missing a name. It's just not there. We know them primarily by their association. So it's Pharaoh's daughter. It's Job's wife. It's the woman at the well talking with Jesus about water. It's the woman who washed the feet of Jesus and so forth and so on. Early Christian writers, they always depicted Eve from the Garden of Eden story as inferior, as less than, as subordinate. Chains which she's trying to break out of for centuries now. And Christian theologians who worked with the New Testament uh, grew much of their understanding from this perspective. Uh, not Paul, but other leaders in the early church who wrote in the letters of the New Testament that we know as Timothy and Titus and some other ones speak of women necessarily remaining silent and submissive. And some of those passages, you have to read them and say, ouch, if you read without context, they ought to pain every one of us. This theme of female inferiority has been blossoming over the centuries, and if you look back in time, various popes have said some pretty appalling things, and Thomas Aquinas, who shaped much of medieval Christianity with his thinking, he believed that women are by nature defective. From our tradition, Martin Luther was pretty impressive in the 16th century, actually, with respect to Uh, the vocation and the role and the place of women as equals in society, but he was no angel. And then we have, of course, plenty of uh, conservative and evangelical Christians. I was reading John Piper the other day, who in fact have some things to say about women being permanently the weaker vessel and men necessarily being superior, the stronger identity, and by requirement, leading. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to figure out that if you have men writing Scripture, and if you have men interpreting Scripture, 
and assigning all of these male characteristics to God, it doesn't take very much of a mind to, in fact, realize that all of the, many of the arrangements in the church, in Christ's church, are shaped by this. There's a reason there's an all-male priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church and male-only leadership in a lot of evangelical uh, or fundamental traditions is all a natural outgrowth of this portrait that has been painted of a masculine, muscular God. Now, so much of the bad rap that Eve has had to live with stems from this, what I would call, strange construal of the creation story in the book of Genesis. Because God formed Eve after Adam, she must therefore, the thinking goes, be inferior, less than, destined for subordination. Actually, I think that's kind of strange thinking because if you read the creation story, every creature that's created is more important and more valuable than the one before it. So guess what? We're, we're deemed to be more valuable than a buffalo or than a, a beetle or than a roach or anything else God created, an armadillo. Why? Because we were created after. We're, we're, we're deemed to be more valuable than a turnip or a peach tree because we were created after. Well, if you follow this reasoning, well, the creation story, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the woman should be the crowning achievement of God's creative order. The woman should be the, the jewel, the pinnacle, the everything. Because after the entire place was created, from the clouds in the sky to the rocks on the beach to the flowers in your garden, then comes Adam, and then God saves the best for the last, then comes the women. And God chose, according to the creation story, to create nothing after Eve. Today, I want you to place your heart and your mind right into this, this prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah has three very feminine images for God. And uh, whatever theological house you live in, however it's decorated, whatever you've got painted on your ceiling to represent your God, uh, let Isaiah blow the doors off, or at least open the windows for some fresh air. And uh, no more mustiness in that house with which we all conceive of God. So let's look at these one at a time. First, Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, for a long time, says God, I've held my peace, I've kept still and restrained myself, but now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and I will pant. Did you catch that? That is God comparing God's self to a woman in labor. Panting, gasping, groaning, making these bellowing noises that have to do with the contraction process and giving birth. I've only participated in two deliveries in my life, and it was pretty nominal if I can judge my role from a distance, our two kids. But anytime I want to recall that experience, I just have to listen to uh, my dear wife watching the TV show, Call the Midwife, 
And I can hear the groaning, and I can hear the bellowing, and I can hear all the guttural sounds that come from the depths of someone in labor. Do you realize that God is describing God's self in this way, as having those very guttural noises that have to do with managing the contractions and trying to relax the breathing and trying to give birth? God is doing what everyone in labor does. God is bringing something new to life. And it's hard work. And it takes some assistance. It takes some support. Any of you that have given birth that probably had a doula or a midwife or a nurse or a doctor or a spouse or somebody in the room assisting. God suggests it doesn't just take a snap of the fingers to redeem this world. As far as I can tell, women who give birth, they're both vulnerable and they're both strong. Not one without the other, but both together all the time. They're open to pain and risk. They're open to support and help. And our world needs all kinds of redemption. It needs rescue. You know this. And God claims through the prophet Isaiah here that God is trying to give birth to this very new world. You could take any issue of the day, and there's plenty to pick from. Just take abortion. I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody in this church, actually, who likes the idea of abortion. But wrestling a new day and a new way out of the tangled mess of opinions that have to do with constitution and body and autonomy and well-being and dignity and everything else, it's going to require some serious work with God. I have to believe a God who's laboring for a world where everybody is respected. The second image, Isaiah speaks of both Jerusalem and Yahweh of God as a mother who nurses her young. As someone who has these young who, who drink deeply, he says, from her consoling breast. Now, let me remind you that whatever theological house you inhabit, as you imagine your faith and your God, we are talking here about God who is a nursing mother. I know you didn't come to church today expecting to hear about this, but but enlarge your imagination. Take it seriously. It affects your faith. A mom who is nursing is constantly in touch with her child, reading that child, listening for the cry of hunger that tells that mom it's time to feed. And if a mother happens to be in the supermarket and there's an infant from another family who starts to cry, there's this letdown reflex that some of you know about where the milk just comes. Why? Because there's empathy. There's this sense that something is needed by someone and my body is responding. That's the empathy that's built deep into the psyche of a nursing mom. And Isaiah tells us it's also built into the life of God. Then there's this third image. 
of God as a mother who holds a child in arm or who dandles a child on her knee, which is really a beautiful way to think about God. I mean, it's a lovely image, a, a, a maternal image. For this, the maker of heaven and earth, and she's wonderful. Now, there's a reason to expand our understandings of God. And it's not just inspired by the Me Too movement, as significant or as relevant as that is. It's this, our conceptualizations of God inevitably affect the ways we relate to one another. And language is limited. It always comes up short. Our pronouns don't cut it all the time. Our metaphors don't work all the time. But Christians have spent, has spilled plenty of blood over the centuries engaging in pretty aggressive behaviors, honestly. Because their view of this muscular God and Jesus as the warrior king has shaped so much of the Christian community. So I just say on this day, you know, blow open the doors and the windows of that house that you live in, that theological house or that religious house or that spiritual house, and try to enlarge your understanding of God. I beg you to do so. It, it simply makes a difference on how we relate to each other. God, today, as a nursing mom who's been through labor or goes through labor, who holds us in the arm, is pretty awesome. So, let our faith uh, grow accordingly as we come to love this God who is both father and mother to us. Amen.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. You know, you don't have to be a woman in labor to change the world, but God needs partners in the delivery room when it comes to redeeming or rescuing the mess of this world. So join her in bringing about new life in your community, your church, and your family. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for your support of the ministries of St. Paul Lutheran Church. Our commitment to projects that lend hope to other people stretches across the country and around the world. We hope that in a good way you feel a part of that reach. Tune in next Thursday for another edition of the St. Paul Podcast.